So here we are, we're into our series on uh, this topic called Mighty. And really what we're doing, as a reminder, we're looking at the aspects of who Jesus is that we don't tend to pay a lot of attention to in terms of um, really honing in and focusing in on the immensity and, and the mighty nature of who he is, the mighty warrior, the, the whole idea of him being so much larger than us. Um, we really enjoy looking at his love, his affection, him being with us, and these are great things that we need to certainly give attention to, but it's also an equally important that we recognize that we take the full counsel of the Word of God as it relates to Jesus. So, really excited for today. King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and we're looking at Revelation chapter 19. So, if you have your Bibles with you or your Bible app, I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. If you don't know where the book of Revelation is, in the beginning of your Bible, there's a table of contents. People worked hard to put it there. Don't be ashamed to use it. Revelation 19, and I'm going to be reading verses, uh, what should we read today? You know, I'm just going to read verse 11, because I think it's a great passage. Here we go. Revelation 19, verse 11, here's what it says. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True, with justice and with justice, he judges and wages war. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together, and I pray, Lord, that as we're looking into your word and we're trying to gain understanding and application, that we just come to grips with what it means for you to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords and how that impacts our lives and the kinds of questions we need to be asking ourselves as we look into a passage like this. So may we understand, may there be clarity, may there be questions, Lord, that help us to draw closer to you and become more like you. In your name I pray, amen. So this is gonna be sort of one of those verse by verse, we're just gonna walk it forward, gain some implications from all these various things that we're gonna see in the passage. And I will tell you that along the way, there are some difficult things for us to wrestle with because, um, one, because of some of the imagery that's used in the passage, but then in addition to that, there's some stuff that we just need to submit into, and that can be a really difficult thing for us to do. So we're going to walk it forward verse by verse. I'm just going to um, start with verse 11. So giving you a little bit of context, a little bit of background, this is the book of Revelation. This is the book of the Bible that people get fascinated by, the thing that has so much prophecy, so much imagery. And, uh, and, and so it gets people really excited, and there's a lot of passion around interpreting it. Not uncommon for people to interpret it in light of the day and age that they live in. By that, what I mean is the first century Christians believed they were the ones that were going to see Jesus return. And we have every generation subsequently believing the same thing. As a matter of fact, I have a book in my office um, called The Last Days, or Last Days According to Jesus, The Last a Brief History of the End Times, I think is what the subtitle is. That's an interesting one, A Brief History of the End Times. Uh, so you can tell then that there's generations upon generations that believe that we're in the last days, and even now, today, we do believe, many of us, that we're in the last days, primarily because of the state of Israel. Now, that being said, as much as we can focus on all the prophecies, as much as we can focus on all those really neat and amazing things to try and figure out, 
there are truths that we need to be able to dive into and make sure that we don't miss them out of our interest in some of these other things. And this passage clearly helps us understand what are those truths. The other thing to bear in mind is this. John is the youngest disciple, uh, and so he's actually the oldest living disciple. Uh, John is writing the book of Revelation from the Isle of Patmos, and this is after there was the attempt to kill him by boiling him in oil. So he's a survivor, uh, he is in prison, and he's writing predominantly to a Jewish um, listener. So in that, we have to understand things from a Jewish context as we walk forward into this passage. So, John, writing to the book of Revelation, Revelation 19, verse 11, and he says, I saw this one who is faithful and true. You know, they say that uh, the only things you can really count on are taxes and death, which is pretty lame. I actually think that here in, in Canada, you can count on the inconsistency of spring within the prairies. You can count on the fact that things are just going to be weird. Um, but here, the idea that we're going to gain from this particular passage is that the only real thing you can actually count on is Jesus. He is the one who is faithful and true. Psalm 33 verse 4 says this, For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. Psalm 145, 13, the Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving to all he has made. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold unswervingly the, to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So the picture that John has here is this idea that the person who's coming forth, the person who is this uh, person riding this white horse from heaven, is faithful, he is true, he is just, he is the one who, um, who is the only one able to judge the nations, the world, history, all these things. He is the only one capable of doing so because he is the only one who is faithful and true, faithful and just. And we see that laid out in the scriptures. And so here's, here's a question. When we obey, or maybe an observation, when we obey the gospel of Jesus as instructed in scripture, we're going to have this assurance with God, right? Like the whole notion of his faithfulness. We're going to have this assurance with God because we're being faithful to him. He says, if you love me, obey my commandments. And if you abide in me, I'll abide in you. This is the language of scripture. And so this whole idea of connectedness is really linked to this concept of our obedience, our surrendering to the lordship of him in our lives. He's king, we then submit. But he says in the midst of all of that, and I really want to pick up on this faithfulness piece, in the midst of all of whatever is going on in life, his faithfulness tells us that his presence is going to be there. And so it even, it even encourages us when he sends the disciples out, you know, in, in the book of Matthew, Matthew uh, 28, he sends them out and in sending them out, he says, I will be with you to the very end of the age. In other words, like he's just, he's going to be present. He's going to be with us. He is faithful and true. And, and so we don't have to be concerned about whether or not God's going to go away from us or, or be separate from us. When we submit 
When we abide in him, he abides in us. And when we claim a love in him, then we obey his commandments. And this is one of the ways we show our love for him. What we find is that this one who is faithful and true is with us. And he walks forward with us. And not only that, that he is the only one capable of doing the things that he claims that he will be doing. And so he is faithful. He is true. He's dependable. You can count on him because he is exactly who he says he is, and there's none other like him. As a matter of fact, if you go into verse 12, verse 12 says, His eyes are like blazing fire, on the, and on his head many crowns, and he was written on him, and sorry, he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. And so if you're going to hear that someone's eyes were like fire, just like flames darting out from their eyes, you're probably going to think that they are being, or that they're very angry, right? They're experiencing uh, that kind of an emotion. That they're, and when someone's angry, very often we get angry because there's this justice issue that we want to see dealt with. Dealing with some kind of wrongdoing. We don't know in the passage whether or not Jesus is in fact angry. What we do know is that he's described as having these eyes that are blazing with fire. It's not the first time it's described this way. He's seeking justice for sin. And so be assured that there's no sin that's going to go unseen. That Jesus sees us. He is searching us. He is looking at the innermost parts of our being. And he, as a disciple of Christ, we then understand that there is this thing called the refiner's fire that we go through. There is this purging, this pruning that he takes us through in life to remove the things that make us more like us and less like him. And he helps us become more and more like him. But this idea, like this imagery of this flame coming from his eyes, that his eyes burn into the depths of the soul of the person and, and is attempting to scorch out the sin or seek it out, burn it out. And the idea here is that we have this king of kings who seeks purity and desires to create that purity in us. And when, so when he says his eyes are like blazing fire, remember, this is the one who is who with justice, he judges and he wages war. And so as he is going in this judging, he's got these eyes that are blazing with fire and on his head are many crowns. And this idea of having many crowns on his head is that it's not just one crown. Like he is king of kings, Lord of lords. And so then this idea of carrying many crowns on his head is this idea that he, in his authority and in his empire, you could say, is above every other king that there ever was. Period. And so as he goes about, he's searching. There's a king that recognized that he was below this righteous, true, just king. And it's King David. In Psalm 139, 23 and 24, he says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so what we have here is this picture of Jesus being able to judge and to wage war and to go against his enemies. And he is searching and his eyes are searching, deep piercing into the souls of people. And he is this one who, by doing so, is able to rightly judge what's going on. 
And it's really important then that for us as believers that we understand that like David was submitting to this, we need to submit to this. Look, we need to understand that Jesus is purging our sin and he wants us to be more like him. He's purging our sin. He wants us to be more like him. He's like, he's judging that sin and purging that sin for the believer, right? So that's the context. We understand he's talking to the church. He's talking to believers. And it's this idea that he's going to purge. He's going to search it out. He's going to judge it out. And those are important things. And, and, and there's so much in this passage that you can go back and you can study a little bit deeper. Like the idea here, like, here's a mind job for me. And I, I couldn't find a satisfactory answer to this. But this whole notion that he has a name written on him that he alone knows. Like nobody else knows his name. That is enormous to me. Like why not? Why can't we know that name? What, what, what holds back our ability to be able to know that name. And yet in the midst of that, what we are told is that he is righteous, he is true. We are told that, that he is the one that with justice and he judges and he wages war, his eyes are blazing fire on his head are many crowns. It says his name, he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. And it's this picture of this person that we understand very shortly here to be Jesus. This picture of this person who was so much bigger than everyone else. Like he alone is the one who wears all these different crowns and is above every king. He alone is the one who is faithful and true. He is alone is the one who is able to search and judge. So the, the piercing, flaming eyes are able to search and judge the core of the being. And so he is above all things and he is different. Like Jesus isn't like you and me. He's bigger. And I think sometimes we have this idea that, well, Jesus is a friend of sinners, and so he's my buddy. You know, don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand this. Jesus loves you. He has immense affection for you. He desires intimate relationship with you. But he is not like you and me. He is above, bigger. And recognize then that this is the one who from on heaven decided to dwell with us. He lowered himself to our level. And I'm not trying to create this negative Christian self-esteem. But we have to recognize that if he is God and we are not, then he is above us. And that requires something different in the relationship. And it's important. Now this next part, this next part is really intriguing. Because again, we get into the imagery and we understand the cultural context. But it says in verse 13, he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Now, some people believe that this particular passage is referencing Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. And that's the blood that is splashed on his cloak. Of course, given the context, right, when we understand that he is given the ability to be the one who wages war, he judges, and the context of this is, is that of the one who is going forward and certainly going against his enemies, um, the likelihood of it referring to his death on the cross, not as likely. It's not impossible, but it's not as likely. So the context, it relates to his judging, relates to defeating the enemies of God. It, it, it denotes uh, the idea that he is the one who is bringing judgment. And so uh, this would be a very terrifying image for anybody, Jew or Gentile, growing up in the Roman or Greek era. And the reason behind that is that Gentiles, so people like you and me, people who are not Jewish, uh, Gentiles would sometimes, if not often, portray a fury 
in this manner. Now, you may not know what a fury is. A fury is an avenging monster. That's what a fury is. And so a fury in these ancient stories would often be depicted as this winged creature, often a female winged creature um, that would be drenched in blood. I know that sounds terrible, right? But it would be drenched in blood because it's coming and it's avenging wrongdoing. It's, a, it's an avenging monster. And so Gentiles and Jews growing up or living in Gentile environments like Rome or Greece would be familiar with this and would be terrified by this image. And if we go back and we look at the language that we find in this passage, that the idea that his, his, he's dressed in a robe that is dipped in blood, it kind of takes us back to Isaiah 63 where God would go out and he would trample the blood of the wicked like wine in a wine press. Here's what it actually says. Isaiah 63, verse 3 and 4. I have trodden the wine press alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance. The year for me... To, to redeem had come. So this is a language that's taking us forward in towards the day of the Lord. Psalm 2 is actually another uh, passage of Scripture that, that the entire psalm is dedicated to the second coming of Jesus and the redemption of the world, but that he stands against his enemies. And that it actually even talks about the enemies of the Lord rising up against him and, and that he stands against his enemies. And so this picture that we have here is understanding that this notion of the hippie Jesus who all he does is love all day, it's an incomplete story. The reality that we find here is that the enemies of Jesus will be confronted by Jesus and they will be dealt with, period. That should be something sobering for us. I think sometimes we try to sanitize Jesus. We just try to make him a whole lot nicer. But the reality is, is that he's, he's a conqueror. He is mighty. And so he is more often than what we depict. Yes, he's friend of sinners. Yes, he came to redeem us. Yes, while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. And he did all these movements of affection in our way that his great love compelled him towards us. But at the same time, he is the mighty king, the Lord of lords, who will deal justly and wage war with his enemies. And we can't ignore that. It's important for us to remember that. So the enemies of Jesus, they're going to be dealt with by Jesus, which means you and I, we're not the ones who deal with his enemies. He is. Catch that? We don't run around looking for all kinds of revenge or, or any kind of vindication on things. No, we go to the Lord and the Lord deals with his enemies in his way and at his time, but he is the one who will do it. So as this conquering, moving king, his name was written on him. We hear that now he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. And that's verse 13. You know, again, verse 13. John's gospel in talking, and this is, this is the identifier. This is how we know that this is actually talking about Jesus. And it's really important that we understand this, because we have two identifiers in this passage. So in verse 13, we have the identifier as he, his name is the word 
of God. So it causes us to look at them and say, okay, where else in Scripture does it talk about a name being the Word of God? And it takes us, again, to John's writing in John 1, verses 1 to 4, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. And so this identifies this writer as Jesus, period. It couldn't be anyone else. If the name is the Word of God, it can only be Jesus. And so we're able then to see that this picture of what we're getting here is that this writer is the creator of all things. This writer is the one that to him, through him, and for him, all things are made. And if that's the case, then again, like he's righteous and true. He, he judges rightly. He pierces the soul of the person. He wages war against his enemies, and he wins. He defeats it all. Nothing can stand against him. In verse, four, verse 14, it tells us that uh, the enemies of heaven, sorry, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on a white horse, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And so these armies, uh, they may include angels. There's a possibility that they may include angels. There's a prophetic passage of scripture that talks about the Messiah coming and, and fighting off the enemies of Jerusalem. In that prophetic passage, angels are mentioned as accompanying the risen one, the, the exalted one of the Lord. And uh, in the defense of Jerusalem. And so we find that actually in Zechariah 14, verses 1 to 5, where it says, A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. And then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on the day of battle. On, the day, on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives will be split in two from the east to the west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will be free. You will flee by the mountain valley for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And listen to this. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Wow. In this passage in, in Zechariah, in this passage in Revelation 19, what we find is that there is this epic battle that will be taking place and that there's, and there's going to be the Lord of hosts that's going to be coming with it. And the hosts of heaven are going to come. The angels are going to be there. The indication, of course, is that, uh, that, that believers are going to be present in that um, army. And what we learn in it is that Satan will finally be defeated, ultimately finished. He was defeated already when Jesus rose on the third day, when he died on the cross, and he said, it is finished. Um, he claimed the victory on, at the resurrection. He proved the victory. But on this triumphant day, Jesus will lock him away for good. And so here's the application. You ready? This idea that the evil one will finally be defeated. 
What we learn in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 is that we are told to be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Here's the great news that comes with it. No longer, no longer will there be somebody prowling around looking to devour us. We're going to be free from his attacks, and that is because of the work of Jesus in standing against his enemies. And then we find this name. This name. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Verse 16. See, in ancient times, a king or a nobleman would often have their title or some kind of honorific writing on their clothing. Maybe it'll be on their um, engraved on their blade, like on their knife. It might be on the hilt, maybe on the scabbard of the, of the knife. And so fundamentally, it's this idea here that Jesus is going to proclaim his name. You're going to be able to see it. It's going to be identifiable that he is exactly who he claims to be. And this notion of being king of kings and lord and lords means that there is no higher authority. His reign over all things will be absolute, is absolute, and just unable to be violated. God raised Jesus from the dead and he placed him over all things. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, 23, uh, 2.23. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fulfills all. Everything's beneath it. Everything. And so when he wears this moniker on his robe, on his thigh, it is this proclamation that he is exactly who he says he is. So let's understand this then. This is very key. It's identifiers that were within this passage. The first identifier tells us who he is. And the second one really does an excellent job of telling us what he is. Who he is? This is Jesus Christ. This is the Word. This is the one who was in the beginning. This is the one that to him, through him, for him, all things are made. Nothing was made that wasn't a, you know, made through him. He was the one, the creator of all things. And in addition to that, then, it tells us that in terms of his authority, he is king of kings. He is lord of lords. There is nobody above him. Everybody is below him, period. We are not on equal ground. He is God. He is above all things. And He alone worthy to be praised. So here's a question that I think each of us need to ask ourselves. Do we allow Him to be our King? Do we humbly submit and yield our allegiance to Him in every area of our lives? Is He King over our lips so that our words honor Him and respect others like it tells us to do in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29? Is He King over our wallets that tells us how to use our money in a way that honors Him? Is He King over our eyes so it determines what we watch, what we look at? Is He King over our hands that Determine what we do. King over our feet, so it tells us where we go. 
Is he king over our marriages and on our, on our just general relationships as a whole? Is he king on how we parent our kids? Is he king of our home? Is he king of our job? Like, is he king of kings and lord of lords in every aspect of our lives or only just in the ones that we're comfortable in? King of kings, Lord of lords. Consider the areas of our lives, of your life, and where you may need to surrender more to Jesus. Surrender to him in all those areas today. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much that you are King of kings and Lord of lords and that we are not. And would you help us to be a people who evaluate our lives and bring into submission those areas of our lives that we know you need to be king of. And Lord, show us what we don't know so that those can be surrendered to. In your name I pray, amen.